Welcome to the Earthshot Podcast, where we champion the Earthshot, a monumental effort to achieve planetary regeneration, restoring the Earth and humanity's place within it. At Earthshot Labs, we're developing the science, technology, and financial systems in service of ecological restoration. The whole idea of consumerism, we tend to assume it's this mania that spontaneously overtook us. And where did it come from? We don't know, but it's bad. If you look at its historical roots, it was a deliberate construct that appeared in the 20th century. What was happening in the 20th century? Well, we were getting hooked on fossil fuels. Hi, this is Patrick Lung, and welcome to the Earthshot Podcast. Hey, this is Armando Davila. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Earthshot Podcast. And we have a personal hero of mine, Richard Heinberg. Um, I first encountered Richard at the Fall Gathering in Bolinas, this uh, small gathering of interesting people. And he was giving a lecture on social cohesion, I believe. And it was a very interesting and awkward kind of gloomy and doomy weekend the fires were raging here in california and we were all wearing masks for smoke protection and the general vibe was how are we going to deal with the fallout of the climate crisis what what will the apocalypse look like and um the thesis in that weekend was banding together on a local level and taking care of each other and maintaining social cohesion so that's how i first became familiar with Richard Heinberg. And then since then, I've really appreciated the work that he's been doing at the Post Carbon Institute and his whole community because they've been, I think they're the people who are most soberly and dedicatedly, if that's a word, uh, articulated, kind of helping us catch up to the state of the world that we're in and to be able to process it and kind of come to terms with it and prepare. And so there's a lot of excellent programming on the Post Carbon Institute website and resilience.org and he has some great podcasts, What Could Possibly Go Right, and Power, The Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, I, I believe is the title. Is that right? That's Richard? it. You got it. Nice. So, Richard, uh, one thing I wanted to hear from you is just what what are some of the things you've learned about power? Um, I learned from your podcast that we're both addicted to it. Uh, we're, I live in the Bay Area. Patrick lives in the Bay Area. Richard, you're in Sonoma. So, you know, we're a high energy consumption region in the world. And um, for all the work that I've seen happening in the Bay Area, I haven't seen really a full comprehension of that and a political response to kind of get into equitable levels of energy use so that our friends can have enough and we can transition off of fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for the invitation to to be on this podcast. And it's it's great to uh, to meet both of you and, and, and talk this way. Yeah, you're right. Um, we live in an affluent part of the world, which means that it's also a, also a high energy consuming region. The two things generally go together. You know, uh, uh, high energy use and affluence are are very strongly uh, correlated globally, and um, of course, affluence is what m- most people aspire to. So uh, we're we're in kind of a, a, a difficult situation when we look at the world in terms of its limits, limits to what uh, to how much carbon the atmosphere can absorb, limits to um, habitat for biodiversity, uh, limits to pollution, how much of that the the environment can absorb, and, and so on. Using energy typically results in more environmental harm. 
one way or the other, even if we're using let's say renewable energy like solar and wind obviously there's less carbon emissions in that case but uh it still takes industrial processes to manufacture and install and transport all of this technology you know mining everything from sand to iron to uh, tellurium and gallium and and all of these rare materials that go into making solar panels and, and so on. So what we really need to be doing, if you look at the human condition and, and our ecological predicament in a sort of holistic way, what we really need to be doing is is just consume less overall. That means having a lower energy lifestyle. And uh, most people are not very happy with that thought because <laughs> uh, we we live in a world where our 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 well well being and our status are both highly correlated with uh, more energy use. So it's a kind of a conundrum. And until we get policymakers on board with this to start to find ways of uh, making a society where well being and status can be achieved without more consumption, then I think, I think we're kind of stuck. So Richard, I come from New Zealand originally that has a very, a country that has a very interesting relationship with energy. It's blessed with a lot of renewable power in the form of particularly hydroelectric, right. um, as well as geothermal. And uh, also interestingly, it's sort of banned nuclear power and any form of nuclear weapons from New Zealand since the 1980s has had a very strong anti-nuclear policy. And so I'm just kind of curious, given given my sort of upbringing and background and everything, like what is your position on renewables and nuclear as ways for us to uh, perhaps more cleanly and sustainably produce energy to power our civilization? Hmm. Like is it some combination of transition to those alternative energy sources while also reducing overall consumption? Or just help me understand your thinking on on the balancing between those two different factors. Right. Well, uh, this is a huge subject, um, and I, I've written a lot on it just recently. I co-wrote, uh, co-authored a book just a few years ago uh, with David Fridley, who's on the energy analysis team at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, a book called uh, Our Renewable Future, which you can search for on the web and find the, the whole text for free. So... Um, our conclusions after a year of looking at uh, the energy transition were that uh, there are some serious problems with both renewables and and nuclear. Uh, we didn't go into great depth uh, looking at nuclear because the the problems were so obvious uh, right off the bat in terms of limits to uh, uranium uh, accident risks uh, in, insurance problems and on and on. Uh, and the, the, the energy world has, independent of us, already reached essentially that same conclusion. That's why most of the interest these days is in solar and wind rather than in, in nuclear power. But solar and wind have their own challenges, uh, the main one being intermittency. Sun doesn't always shine, wind doesn't always blow. So therefore, we need, uh, we need storage, we need redundant generation capacity, we need demand management, and all of these things have costs attached. Also, there are limits to the materials I, I talked about just a moment ago that, that go into building renewable energy generators. 
uh, pollution problems, uh, limits to recycling of all of those materials. There's only just recently been some interest in doing uh, system dynamics modeling of the energy transition. That's where you you use computers to sort out all of the variables that will be involved, uh, cost variables, materials, the speed of the transition, and see how these things will interact over time, whether it's a, a, a fast or a slow transition. I'm just writing a piece on this right now, actually, so it's, it's right in front of mind. Um, the, the conclusion of the experts is that the energy transition is possible, but it's going to be difficult. And the thing that makes it most difficult is simply the scale of our current energy usage. If we had started the uh, the transition earlier, before we had built up our energy usage to such a, an enormous peak where we are now, if we'd started, say, you know, 20 or 30, ideally 50 years ago, it would have been so much easier. Also, we would have had access to fossil fuels of uh, higher quality because uh, the, one of the problems with fossil fuels is as you extract and burn them, then the next bit that you have to get out of the ground is is going to be harder to get uh, because we naturally go for the cheap, easy stuff first. And it's not as though we're about to run out of oil, coal, or natural gas anytime soon. But the, the, the good stuff, the stuff that provided a very high energy return on the energy we invested in extracting it and refining it, that stuff is mostly gone. So we're, we're starting the energy transition now under conditions that are not ideal. And the only way it's likely to work, uh, according to these scenario modeling studies, is if we reduce energy usage for other activities like manufacturing, air transport, and, and so on, so that we can devote a lot of energy to the energy transition itself. And, and unfortunately, I don't think that message is making it to, to policymakers at this point. What, what policymakers are hearing right now is the, uh, is the idea of green growth, which uh, you know I think well-meaning environmental analysts have been putting forth for some time. The idea that, well, solar and wind technologies are getting better all the time. They're getting cheaper all the time. So in fact, uh, you know, we'll save money by going renewable and ditching fossil fuels and, and uh, we'll, we'll make lots of jobs. And, and so we'll, we'll still have economic growth, but it'll be green growth. The, the scenario studies don't support that idea. Um, yeah, jobs will be created, but much of the rest of industrial society is going to have to either downsize considerably or be almost completely reinvented. Uh, I, I mentioned aviation uh, a moment ago. Uh, you know, all of these things we can do on, on the laboratory desktop, right? We, you, can, you can design airplanes that run on hydrogen. You can figure out how to make cement for concrete without using fossil fuels. It's, it's possible at the laboratory scale, but to scale these ideas up to the giant industrial scale of the global economy as it is today is going to be not just you know difficult and time consuming, but may actually be impossible in some cases without you know just completely reinventing these industries. Um, 
so I don't think all of that's being taken into account. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I definitely feel like the the image that was sold to me was that we can pretty much maintain business as usual with a different energy source. And I, I hear you really just saying that's not possible. And I was actually reminded of this LinkedIn debate actually that happened recently with Chad Frischman, I think, who used to run or was heavily a part of Project Drawdown and some other people. And someone, I think, raised a point that you brought up in a similar, in, in our previous conversation where um, they were saying that like renewables just can't pick up the weight. And then Chad was arguing that it's likely that there'll be like several more iterations of innovation in those technologies, which will then allow them to pick up the weight uh, or the, the energy demand. And I was just like, ah, oh, interesting. And I feel like there's like, I don't know if there's like an emotional need. I mean, I, we, we do need hope on some levels, but we also need accurate information. And um, I don't know, just this whole paradigm scares me as an American because our country is not very good at relinquishing things. <laughs> it, losing privileges does not go well in this country, which I think is just a, a mountain of an obstacle. Well, speaking of relinquishing, I'm, I'm really sort of curious on behalf of all the people listening to the podcast, like, is there a short list of changes that people can make in their lives that will help bring about this reduction in consumption? Because it sounds like you're advocating for transformation and kind of almost like a sort of a contraction in terms of economic activity in order to consume fewer resources and pollute less. How can consumers exert agency in this? Right. Um, well, maybe just telling a little bit of my story will will help with this. Um, my wife and I moved to Sonoma County, this you know beautiful high consumption region <laughs> back in the, around 1990. And uh, we, we had virtually nothing at that time. And we, we scraped and scrabbled. My wife worked as a massage therapist and I was a uh, freelance writer at the time, getting, getting little jobs here and there, editing, writing. And we managed to cobble enough, uh, cobble enough together to eventually buy a house. And uh, we got a house with a quarter acre lot. It was a uh, practically a tear down, you know, worst house in in the neighborhood and not a very good neighborhood. But, you know, we, we put everything into it and we desi- decided right from the get-go that this was going to be as sustainable a house as possible. We, we, we decided to use our lives as kind of a laboratory to see you know, how we could be, a, you know, a model for, you know, if everybody else lived this way, then a lot of problems could get solved. So, you know, uh, we've had solar panels on our roof for so long that they turned into antiques and now they've, they've been replaced with, uh, with newer models that are far more efficient and are, are cheaper. And, you know, the old ones were still working. So we donated them to a good cause. We have solar hot water. We have an air source uh, heat pump for heating and cooling runs on on our solar electricity. We have solar food dryers, solar cookers. You know, I could go on and we grow a lot of our own food in the backyard, 25 fruit and nut trees, garden beds, uh, chickens, you know, the whole sustainability nine yards. I mean, the other people can do a lot of these things. And what have we learned from uh you know, 30 years or so of, of doing this, one of the things we've learned is that there are some things that are under under our control. You know, we've we got the solar panels. Great. We're generating our own electricity. But there's a heck of a lot that's just not under our control. Oh, I forgot to mention the electric car. Okay. But, you know, we don't build highways. 
we don't uh, we don't make the the building materials that have gone into our our home and all the the add-ons we've we've constructed. We don't even make the glass for our solar cookers. All of these things are done in industrial processes far away by people we don't know who make decisions that we don't participate in very much other than you know buying products. And in some cases, we're more or less forced to buy products or participate in processes just because there aren't you know, many other choices available. You, know, you can't choose which roads you're going to drive on, and I'm only going to drive on green roads you know, with concrete made <laughs> from low-carbon materials. You know, that's, that choice is not available. So you know, we found that reducing our carbon footprint, the places where we've actually reduced our carbon footprint the most... We're not in all of these areas where we've actually spent. We've spent tens of thousands of dollars over these years in, you know, solar panels, electric car, all the stuff that I just mentioned. But that's actually not where we've saved the most carbon emissions. It's where we just didn't do things like not flying or, <laughs> or we didn't reproduce. We didn't have any children. Actually, that's the that's the single biggest mark in our credit in terms of carbon emissions when you do the analysis. <laughs> so um, that when I, when I look back on that and I do the numbers, it really tells you a lot. Uh, yeah, we can accomplish a lot, all of us together, if we do the right things, choose the right products, you know, uh, generate our own power, go solar, all of these things. And if we're if we really want to have the biggest impact, you know, just consume less. Is this reality? We choose what we see. Close your eyes. Is it just you? reminding me i saw this there was this graph a while back i wish i could cite the sources i'm sorry it was basically looked like a wine glass and it was about how much energy and carbon consumption per uh income it was, and basically the graph showed that like when it gets towards like the top 10 percent the use just vastly increases and uh, similarly i remember seeing this a headline popped pop across one of my screens and it's basically saying that like the whole continent of Africa is like responsible for, so someone can fact check this, but like less than 5% of like total emissions or something like that. And so I think it's like, after listening to your podcast, I was like, okay, let me plug in my phone. Okay. Let me heat up my tea kettle. <laughs> okay. Let me, 
you know, play my speaker. Like every one of these things is using energy, which came from somewhere. Fun fact, I moved into an apartment, haven't paid my PG&E bill yet. They're going <laughs> to. So, but, you know, this energy is coming from somewhere. And I don't think we like fully internalize. I think there's one thing I appreciate about you specifically is that just the degree in which we're swimming in high energy consumption as a just fact of life. You know, it's a mm, thing that we have yeah. not recognized as intrinsically unsustainable. One, one question that comes to mind is sort of like, are there any surprising facts or maybe sort of things that people don't realize are super energy intensive that might be simple things, changes for them to make where like, I, you know, of course, a lot of people talk about diet, like not eating beef because, or not eating as much beef because uh, of the environmental implications and the fact that it sort of consumes a lot of water and emits a lot of methane and all this kind of thing. But I'm just kind of curious in all of your research for your books and so on, if there, are there any interesting factoids or principles or insights that might not be obvious to people? Uh, well, yeah, there are a lot of them. You mentioned eating lower on the food chain. That's that's no secret. Uh, a lot of us are, uh, have been doing that for a long time. You know, uh, the the embedded energy or embodied energy in stuff is something we often don't take account of. Uh, for example, cars, you know, uh, the electric car is better than an internal engine, an internal combustion engine car. But that's over the lifetime of the car. In the, act, in the manufacturing stage, the electric car actually uses more energy and materials to make. And that's one of the reasons that electric cars are usually a little more expensive for the, the same level of, of amenity and size. So when you, when you really think about that, the, the implication is, well, maybe cars just are not a great technology from the get-go. You know, that they're, they're an inherently very wasteful form of transportation. Uh, shouldn't we be thinking about how to get people where they need to go without cars, or or thinking about how to design our, our how to design our cities so that people don't even need motorized transportation most of the time in order to do what they need to do? That's that's one of the kinds of of insights that I I, I think is is pretty easy to to notice. You know, once you start thinking in in terms of of energy, I have a a. a a colleague named Nate Hagens, and uh, he's he's been on this stuff for years. And he he has this term. He he says people are mostly energy blind, and uh, he he has a degree in in ecological economics. So he applies this this energy blind term mostly to other economists because the the whole field of economics uh, he he says, and I agree with him is is energy blind. Uh, economists look at production in terms of labor and capital. But if you look at production from uh, a, a biophysical perspective, it's all about materials and energy. So how can, um, how can economists properly account for what's going on in the world if they're just looking at labor and capital and ignoring materials and energy. It really doesn't make sense. And we we look at the we tend to look at the world through economic lenses. 
certainly politicians do, but uh, newspaper reporters, we're, we all get caught up in this. You know, we listen to what what economists say because they're smart people and they're trained and and they're supposed to know how things work. But if their if their whole way of looking at the world is skewed toward these human con- constructs and away from, you know, just physics and the way nature actually operates physics and biology, then we're, we're really, you know, devaluing the things that, that matter the most and, and ignoring those things and paying way too much attention to things that, you know, maybe give us a sense of, of privilege over the short term, but may be very unsustainable over the long term. You know, it's interesting. When I was at Google, there was a woman called Rachel Botsman who came in to talk about what she calls collaborative commerce, like the sort of rise of collaborative mm. commerce. And so her perspective was that consumerism is this kind of weird historical anomaly where we're going to look back, you know, midway through the century and say, remember those days when everybody had to sort of felt they had to own their own version of everything? And so she was quoting these kind of rather sort of alarming or it's kind of funny stats in some ways about how, you know, for instance, everyone has a power drill and it only gets used on average a few minutes in its entire lifetime. So why on earth do we do this? And of course, pointing out the rise of Uber and Airbnb and other gigantic sort of examples of collaborative commerce. So yeah, I'm just kind of wondering, like, are there examples of that or other other forms of innovation that are happening in the world today that can help reduce our Sort of assumption that everybody needs to own everything themselves. Yeah, well, the the most important innovations in those regard are are as you implied, social innovations rather than necessarily technological ones. Uh, the whole idea of consumerism, you know, is consumerism is. I think we we tend to assume it's this mania that spontaneously overtook us. And where did it come from? We don't know, but it's bad. Well, if, if you look at its historical roots, uh, they're, they're very clear. It, it, was a, it was a deliberate construct that appeared in the 20th century. What was happening in the 20th century? Well, we were getting hooked on fossil fuels. Fossil fuels were making all kinds of things possible that were I- impossible before. As a result of having all of this fossil energy, instead of 90% of the population working at farming in order to create a 10% surplus that could allow people to live, a few people to live in cities and have jobs. Instead, we we transitioned to a system where with fossil fuels, 1% of the population grows all the food for everybody else and people move to the cities and suddenly we have an exploding middle class, all kinds of jobs. Fossil fuels make it possible to manufacture stuff faster and in larger quantities. So this was a huge demographic and social shift, and it had some serious glitches, one of which was the Great Depression, where because we were producing so much stuff so fast, it was impossible for the markets to absorb it. There wasn't enough consumption. So it was a crisis of overproduction, and the industrial system innovated its way out, not with more technology, but it innovated socially, um, also politically. Consumerism was the result of that. Through more advertising, through planned obsolescence, we talked people into wanting to consume more. And with more consumer credit, 
it became possible for people to consume now and pay later. Again, stoking consumption. And this was seen as a good thing. It was getting us out of the depression. It was creating jobs. It was feeding people. It was solving real problem, real human problems. So consumerism didn't come from nowhere. Uh, it has it has historical roots, and those have to be addressed if we're going to get past consumerism. So you know we're going to we're going to need social innovation in terms of how do we provide for basic human needs uh, as we move away from fossil fuels, as we move away from an economy that's organized so that you know a tiny fraction of people are involved in energy production activities like farming and the vast majority are involved in energy using activities like everything else practically to a, a an economy where you know really more of us are have to going to have to be involved in producing energy one way or another i'm not saying we'll all have to become farmers again but it's it's going to be a, a different kind of economy, and we have to sort that out. It's going to be a big economic, social, and I think political uh, shift, and there will again be glitches. But if we're thinking pro-socially as we go through this, not looking for people to blame, but looking for ways to cooperate and share, that's how the, the transition is going to go best. Yeah, I agree. I've my own conclusion in thinking about this whole mess is that most of the work that we need to do is on the social level, even if it was just funding more research and design on how to make this transition work for everybody. Just, I, I feel like I haven't really seen a coherent model. But I feel like there's these like political moments where a policy like the Green New Deal comes into the fore, and we can kind of rally around that. But I, I feel kind of dumbstruck that like more things like Project Drawdown aren't like bubbling up. And we're just not just implementing them with kind of survival fervor. There was a, a, a social innovation a few years ago. That's it's actually still going on. The transition movements, the transition towns that started in in Britain, but it's all over the all over the place now. I don't want to say it's run out of steam a little bit, but I don't think it's I don't think it moved ahead as as quickly or caught on as deeply and thoroughly as it could have. But the whole idea of the transition initiatives was to do this at the local level, which I think is is really the smart thing to, you know, build local resilience ahead of climate change and and get people involved in the process of doing all the things that we've been talking about, moving away from dependence on fossil fuels, reducing energy usage, and so on. And making it fun, you know, making it uh, so that it's not just a onerous job of giving things up, but it's a it's a process of actually building community and uh, celebrating together and and, and uh, getting the arts involved and, and so on. Like I say, I don't I don't want to say that the, the transition initiatives have run their course. Maybe they're just getting started. But that basic idea that motivated transition, I think, is is absolutely right on. And maybe other organizations can come along and do essentially the same thing or or add to the process. But that's that's the kind of thinking that I think is going to get us the furthest. I really like um, the concept of sort of bringing in arts and other areas that are sort of inherently non-commercial. Um, it's interesting reading the, the the works of people like Charles Eisenstein, who was in our previous season, talking about the fact that we've reached a point where, you know, commerce is now extended into our consciousness. Like we, we now have companies that make, 
you know, multi-billion dollar companies that essentially exist by monetizing our attention spans. You know, we're entered into this weird zero-sum game of just having our entire, you know, actually our inner world colonized by corporations in order to continue to grow the economy. And so I, I would hope that um, the space created by consuming less, whether it's with our attention spans or with our pocketbooks or whatever, is going to actually create the space for more appreciation of, of nature and of uh, the arts and of other things that are probably better for us, better for our consciousness, better for our well-being, rather than being replaced by more commerce. Yeah, well, d- doing these things, uh, wh- whether it's arts or or nature based, you know, getting away from the these these uh, consumer experiences back to ones in which we're participating and sharing, and it's it's an act of of resistance, of revolt in a way, <laughs> and it, and on top of that, it feels good. <laughs> for giving that historical context for consumerism. I did not have that. I found that pretty revelatory. Um, the solution to one era's problem cemented us into a dynamic that created an even larger problem. And I also, yeah, I was just thinking about the transition. There was a, this woman in Berkeley who was doing like repair cafes where you could come and bring your um, technology and people would fix it for you. And the thing is like really wholesome. And I feel like one of the main challenges I, I, presume she had was just finding funding to like keep her programming going and to kind of keep the momentum up. And I keep, I I also just feel confused. Like why hasn't planned obsolescence been illegalized? Like why is that even? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was one, that was one of the strategies that created consumerism. And, and if you look back at the, at the, uh, the literature, the, the, you know, the, the, the articles that were written by, uh, uh, management consultants and uh, and economists at the time they were they were praising planned obsolescence as a strategy that would help with the effort you know of creating jobs and and stabilizing the indus- in the industrial system. Eric Eric Severide, who was a a, a news guy, uh, on, I think he was on CBS for 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 decades. He's he's long gone now, but his favorite quote of mine is: "Solutions are the cause of all problems." <laughs> well, very Hegelian. <laughs> Love it. I, I was, you know, to that end, Richard. Like I was sort of curious like you know it seems to me you look around at our economy and there is almost like a cult of growth in fact this it sort of seems to some extent embedded within our very civilization and values right i mean you look at the stock market and all the stock prices that are out there that people trade and that have formed the the bedrock of the growth of our economy for the past 
number of centuries, it's essentially based on this assumption of continued growth for decades you know, to come. And so I'm just kind of wondering if, if you have any philosophy or even sort of systems that you would advocate to kind of replace that? Like if we're going to be in a world where growth is no longer the thing that we all sort of fetishize or that we all kind of aspire towards, then what is it? What is the thing that we all kind of rally around as being the central kind of metric or the central principle of our economy and civilization? Big question. Well, the, the, the short answer is well-being. Um, you know, I've written a couple of books about this and other people have, have written even better books. So there's, 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 there's no shortage of, of material on this subject. Growth hasn't been around forever. You know, it's only since the 20th century, the mid 20th century, that we've even tracked economies as a thing, you know, the economy as a thing with GDP as the metric and so on. Before that, it was just, you know, you, you do what you do, whether whether you're investing or making stuff or selling stuff. People just did what they did. And, and sometimes the uh, business was, was good and sometimes it wasn't. And people generally understood that what goes up must come down. There wasn't this idea that somehow the economy can grow and grow and grow and grow. The only reason it's done so for the past several decades is that we've been using all of this fossil energy that was produced by nature over tens of millions of years, and we're drawing it down and burning it over the course of two, three hundred years. That's the biggest energy boost human beings have ever found, and it's what's resulted in our population going from 1 billion to 8 billion in 200 years. Our economy doubles in size every 25 years, so think about that. Since 1997, the amount of waste we, we produce on an annual basis has doubled. The amount of iron ore we've, we extract from the ground, the amount of fossil fuels we burn has doubled. And if we keep doing this in 25 years, it'll double again. Economists look at that and they say, that's great. <laughs> that's economic growth. But you know, an ecologist or a physicist looks at that and goes, wow, we're in trouble. We're headed toward a wall. So this idea that growth is good, we, we've got to get away from that. Uh, system scientist looks at that and says, well, that's, that's a self-reinforcing feedback. And system scientists are trained to look for self-reinforcing feedbacks in systems because those are always warning signs that something is about to go very, very wrong or something is already going very, very wrong. What we want to see are balancing feedbacks where, you know, if there's growth for a period of time, then, you know, that's going to be balanced out by, by relative contraction at some other time or somewhere else in the system. That's how biological organisms work. That's how ecosystems work. So how do we get off of growth? Well, it's, it's going to take a revolution in economics or the simple dethroning of economics, you know, Stop listening to economists. You know, if they're if they're making an, a mistake so extraordinarily huge as to think that economic growth is good and it can go on forever, then why should you listen to anything else they have to say? So, it, of course, getting off of growth is going to on a on a systemic basis for for society as a whole is going to require some enormous adjustments. But there are already ecological economists and biophysical economists who have been thinking along these lines for many years and have 
ideas for how to reform finance, how to reform the economy and the way the economy is managed so that we can maybe go through a period of planned contraction to where we get back within the ecological limits of the planet. And then from there, we can have an economy that actually is sustainable. He's got, it's very well thought out, super clear. Love the just continuity and integrity of your thought. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And these are very scary subjects, actually, the things that you're touching on. I mean, people would throw enormous fits, would even potentially overthrow the capital if a, a politician came out kind of advocating for these points. I just, I don't know, like the social dimension of the problem in America, I just, I find it so daunting. And it's like post-truth paradigm and even like the progressives and the liberals aren't fully touching the reality of the climate crisis and the underlying economic causes and the reality of the energy transition. And we're in the business um, of trying to restore nature using uh, carbon markets, a finance mechanism to bring ecosystems back into health and wealth. This well-being perspective is is an interesting one because there's like a kind of a debate, I think, happening in the carbon markets. Like, is, is nature a proper offset? Should we use the machines to suck out the air, uh, the carbon? And on a basic level, I think everyone at the Earthshot team is like, why would we not put everything we have in restoring the earth and the water and all the living systems and all the ecosystems? Like, do we not want a biosphere with integrity? The planet, the living systems are the best things we have at co-regulating. And it's it's funny because just you can see the economic logic operating in the market, just like totally failing to value nature intrinsically. And, you know, if, if we were to give nature its just deserves in terms of like whatever, even economic valuing, we had we have a guest from the Earth Loss Center and they were talking about the intrinsic value of a shark and someone calculated to be $300,000 as opposed to like $150 you could sell it for illegally. And um, just valuing nature itself would cause some significant contraction because the way we go about these industrial processes are extremely damaging. The need for contractions coming at, at many different angles, and it's 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 a taboo topic. I feel, and you know, getting back within the limits of the earth is like a very radical prospect when you're in a kind of positive feedback loop that mimics you know a cancerous dynamic. I was I just was so eloquently put in the first Matrix by Mr. Smith talking to Neo. Yeah, and it has to happen in our lifetime. That's the other thing that I find just remarkable. It's like we, the humans who are alive right now, are either going to get this right or get this wrong or get it's some hybrid situation and we're going to deal with the fallout. And um, like we have to have the kind of like heroic visionary courage to say we can do better. Step away <laughs> from the fuel source. Uh, let's proactively figure out a transition that we can all like collectively manage and let's like see what else we can come up with. And I, I, I feel like uh, it's a very courageous act. And I, I, I'm like, wow, do, do our leaders really not believe in us that we can't actually figure this out? Because I feel like we're, we're locked in this dynamic where we're not really allowed to figure it out because we're still clinging to business as usual in such a significant way. Well, that, that leads me to a question, actually, Amanda, which is uh, for you, Richard, which is um, who is getting it right? So we are observing in the, the world of um, nature and climate change and so on, there are certain countries out there and certain leaders that really have taken a stand. And, you know, look at my home country of New Zealand, right? They have a very advanced sort of carbon accounting system and it's opt-in by default. And so 
it, you know, this is where if the rest of the world was doing this, we'd be in really great shape as far as meeting our Paris climate treaty obligations and all these kinds of things. And so, um, and we've seen other countries as well that, you know, like Costa Rica had a massive national program to reforest the country and to really shift the incentives on the ground for land stewards in, in the right direction. You, you just mentioned two of the countries that I that I would have talked about. Yeah. And and Denmark is doing some good things and, and, and a few others. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us more. Like, it's just because your perspective intersects with ours, but it's sort of in some ways broader um, in terms of just which are the countries that you feel are serious about um, being responsible about their footprint in the world and about, you know, eliminating unnecessary growth or consumption or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, well, you know, generally speaking, c- countries that are already consuming less are better positioned. Now, uh, some of them are doing everything they can to promote consumption so that they can quote, develop, unquote, which I, I, I actually hate that word because it, uh, it tries to equate economic growth with a natural developmental process like going from infancy to adulthood. And the two things are completely different. So it's, it's just a failed, it's, it's worse than a failed metaphor. It's a, uh, it's a malign metaphor, really, malignant metaphor. But nevertheless, the cu- countries that uh, that are at, toward the lower consuming end of, of the range and that aren't going broke for for growth are are models for everybody else. For Americans, you know, I we shouldn't be getting in airplanes and traveling. But when I was uh, teaching ecology at, in a in a college, uh, private college, a few years ago. I encourage my students, you know, if, if you're going to give up flying, before you do so, take a trip and visit a, uh, what, what used to be called a third world country, a country where people are consuming, you know, instead of living on 15,000 watts, which is what a typical American does, people who are living on maybe 2,000 watts uh, of power uh, in an average day and just see how they live, see how it feels, see how their lives go. Are these happy people? Are they solving their problems? Because Americans, are, we're stuck in this in this matrix of overconsumption where it's the only way we know how to live and we think it's normal and we think that having less means misery and it doesn't necessarily depends on how the society is organized. But, you know, Costa Rica, even Cuba, you know, it, Cuba has its problems, but uh, <clears throat> Cuba has tried to solve a, a lot of its problems in, in, in some ways in pretty intelligent ways, and in some ways more intelligent than, than what the U.S. has done. So let, let's, uh, let, let's explore all those, all those possibilities and see what works. I, I got another one for you, Richard. Like, so we... You know, we're, the name of our company is Earthshot, and what what is an Earthshot? Because the moonshot was pretty pretty obvious, right? It was sort of like, let's land people on the moon. That's a very verifiable, very crispy, very sort of like understandable um, goal. So at Earthshot, you know, one way of characterizing this could be, hey, let's get to a point where across the world we have more trees growing as opposed to trees disappearing. So net reforestation. I'm kind of wondering, like, is there some kind of like a overall goal or metric that we'll we'll know, like, if we accomplish this or if we get this number below a certain level, that we're going to be okay? 
So if you look at climate change, people talk a lot about the 1.5 degree Celsius envelope. If you look at the Earth overshoot, they talk about like how many Earths are we using up right now. Currently, I think it's about 1.75. Ideally, it's less than one, right? Like in terms of the ecological capacity of the Earth and things like that. But I'm just kind of curious, is there, if you wanted to share with our, with our listeners, with our audience, like what is, how, how to sort of frame this in terms of like a challenge or in terms of a metric or in terms of a goal, what would you call that as being the, the goal? You already mentioned the one that I I would choose, which is the ec- ecological footprint. And I don't know if you've interviewed Matus Wackernagel, but uh, I think he would be a, a great person to talk to about that because he's he's devoted his life to it. And the, the co-inventor of the ecological footprint, uh, William Rees, who was a human ecologist. He's retired now, taught at uh, uh uh, University of British Columbia for for many many years and uh, absolutely brilliant scientist. So uh, those those are good people to talk to about that. Ecological footprint analysis basically looks at you know how much biocapacity uh, we use versus how much the Earth can regenerate. And as you mentioned, you know we're uh, we're way over that mark. Uh, for Americans, you know, we'd need four Earths. If everybody lived like us, we'd need four Earths worth of biocapacity. And we don't have four Earths. We, we have one Earth. The way we manage to do it is to use biocapa- take biocapacity from future generations. We're drawing down Earth's uh, ability to support life. Uh, for other species and for future generations. And uh, when, when you really see that, when you really internalize it, it, it tells you exactly what we need to do. We need to you know, be setting aside land for uh, not just for forests, but for all of the species that, that are supported in, in, in wild ecosystems. Uh, to me, you know, all the focus on climate change is, is uh, it's justified. But in a way, it's it's a misdirection because if if you look at what's happening to wild nature right now, and there have been some some absolutely shattering recent studies about this, showing seventy uh, percent loss in the in the average population sizes of insects, birds, mammals, uh, all all vertebrates and invertebrates. It's um, uh, how can we be doing this to not just to ourselves but to future generations? It's 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 uh, it's a travesty beyond all all. It's unspeakable. I don't know where you came from, but this road is yours to trail. Made to mold into. Song that sung before your day. So you found the beat, the melody, the words to lift your soul. You were made with love, you were made with love, you were made with love. So, what can we do? The one big idea is to is to set aside half of the Earth. E. O. Wilson, the great uh, 
the great biologist uh, who studied ants for his his whole career. He just died recently. E.O. Wilson suggested half Earth. We set aside half of the Earth for regeneration of, of other uh, other creatures. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, that is a good place to start. Ooh, it just it feels so. You know, I I don't think we really just acknowledge how this is this dilemma that we're in is the culmination of you know all of life on Earth and all of our evolutionary journey as a species, and I think it kind of gets flattened into this paradigm of just you know, society as usual, but we're kind of missing the cosmic scale of just even our own like minutial context, you know, like us figuring this out. I just, I guess the thing I want to represent right now is that like us figuring this out is legendary. Like us getting through the situation, even from where we're at today and just kind of like turning the mind towards like, what's the best possible route through this and focusing on mission critical and like, having all those like critical social innovations where you're going to have the psychological fortitude and the social cohesion and the political collaboration to just really give this our best shot. Like I think if only we get to a positive attitudes towards the situation where we're fully green lights, let's just tackle this thing, you know, the best of human ingenuity. Here's what we got. I mean, I just want that moment. I want, you know, that moment where all the world leaders united and are like, all right, we, we gaslit you for some decades. We're really going to do it this time. And we're going into full transition mode. And I'm just like, oh, I crave for that. You know, you know, one, um, I was going to say like one <clears throat> interesting characterization of our current predicament, humanity's current predicament is that we suffer from a failure in imagination. Like we've gotten so used to the way things are, the whole business as usual way of doing things that it's hard to even imagine a way out, like you were saying, Armando. So I wanted to give you the opportunity, actually, Richard, to help us out of this failure of imagination. Like, help us envisage, like, how would you describe, you know, let's just say 20 years from now. And this is something actually that, that an exercise that Armando and I went through at Bioneers earlier on this year when we were in this workshop where um, we talked about, you know, the sort of the, the solar punk, you know, future where we've gotten through all of this and things are great. And what would that world be like? Like, how would you describe that, that world? What would you choose to highlight for all of our listeners out there as far as this is the world that we can live in that is responsible and within the ecological footprint? And here are some of the key things we see around us or mm. shifts that we've been through in order to reach that point. Yeah, you don't have to fully sugarcoat it either. You can give us the real. Well, you know, this, this is why I wrote my last book, Power. Um, because, first of all, power is good. You know, it's what enables us to do everything we do. Uh, we speak of power as, as the ability to do something, the power of flight, the power of speech, and, and so on. And then we also have social power, which is the ability to get other people to do things. And uh, so I, I tell the history of power and how we got to this, this moment where we are right now by developing the tools of, of physical power, energy sources and technologies, and social power, uh, weapons and money, communication technologies. And then all of that got supercharged by fossil fuels in the last 100 years or so, where we could do everything we were doing before, only bigger and faster. Um, and so we find ourselves outstripping nature's limits in all sorts of ways, not just climate change. 
So what what do we do? Well, the fact is that power is something that we've been skeptical about since the very, very beginning. And not only does nature have ways of balancing power and limiting power on an ongoing basis, everything from predator-prey, balancing relationships, all the way up through the way our body balances its its temperature from moment to moment. Our metabolism is, is, is balanced. Not only that, but human societies have found ways of, of reestablishing balance when things get out of whack. Sometimes that takes the form of a collapse, you know, when societies get so complex and so big, like empires and kingdoms, they, you know, social scientists, uh, historians now are pretty well agreed that this collapse is a kind of normal feature of complex human societies through history. When wealth gets too concentrated, uh, then people at the bottom of the economic pyramid just give up and they stop supporting the whole enterprise and it falls down. Uh, or when people at the top of the social pyramid get too greedy and start fighting with one another, again, that can that can result in collapse. So we have ways of maintaining balance in power and reestablishing balance of power. It's going to happen. Uh, nature will win in the end, and and balance will be reestablished. The question is, how is it going to happen? And if, if we're working in the direction of rebalancing things and doing it from the standpoint of minimizing the casualties and maximizing the opportunities of the survivors, then I think we have, we have nature on our side, we have evolution on our side, and we have humanity on our side in the end. Um, what we have arrayed against us are the institutions of excess power that have been created in a historically recent period that seem so enormous, that seem irresistible, but are completely unsustainable. They will fall. The only question is how. So be on the side of the angels. That's the, that's the moral of the story. Thank you for that. I'm experiencing a, a kind of love for you, Richard, that I don't have the words for. You know, it's it's part fandom. <laughs> <laughs> or you're, you're too kind. And then also, I'm just really appreciating the kind of, you're really compressing a lot of information in, in a really elegant way. And um, I know Patrick's a big Lord of the Rings fan, so I don't know. I almost want to attribute a Gandalf level of wizardry, sorcery <laughs> power to you. <laughs> well... In your articulation on this front, because the things you're bringing clarity to are just, I think they're really important. No, thank you. I've, I, I've, I've mentioned some of my heroes already in our conversation and, and it's okay to have heroes. So whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes there's a lot of power in just saying, speaking out loud, the world that we want to see and the world that we want to experience. And out of that sometimes comes a lot of inspiration. Like science fiction is a bit like that. Like one of my favorite science fiction writers, Ian Banks, like he just said he wanted to write about a civilization that he'd be really excited to live in. And out of that came a whole series of novels that everybody loves, you know, many people love and have inspired a lot of people. Um, so sometimes those words have a lot of power. So I'm really happy to to hear about your vision of the future and just the way you see us moving through this in a, in a state of grace and balance and equilibrium. That's really 
really inspiring. I have the sci-fi that I never developed, but I, do, I don't want to tell you the premise of it. <laughs> There's like one blog post on the Work That Reconnects uh, journal. It's called Trends Incarnate. But essentially the premise was that uh, humanity collapsed and it was real ugly, uh, deep, intense warming, um, not that many survivors. But then the people who did get together uh, were forced to get together in a really serious way. And some of them, there are a lot of scientists in the, in the survivors and some people continued the kind of research on like meditation and the nature of the mind and figured out how to um, scale the process of reaching deep concentration states into community level, a social scale. So then the, the, group, the group of survivors figured out collective states of deep concentration and how to ha- live in a way that had zero social drag. The whole like Buddhist cosmology is like how to be in the right relationship. So you're not loading the mind and the body with more stress. Like the whole moral guideline is about maintaining a stressless mind so you don't have to process it in meditation. So basically this group figures that out. And then they just start advancing like really radically. Because without the kind of like social drag, people are just really brilliant, it turns out. And then uh, in this storyline, they send people back to our time because they figured out how to hack reincarnation. And then they start implementing their, uh, their survival strategies earlier in the timeline so that they have like more, they have like, so people have a better chance of surviving the, the Armageddon that's coming. So, you know, I'm, I'm, one day I'll really flesh this whole thing out, but I, I still just believe in the principle. Yeah, you should write that. Yeah, we 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 need more optimistic post-apocalyptic uh, fiction, and uh, you know that's to me that's the only genre of fiction that's 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 interesting these days. It's the only the only stuff that rings true, and I love the idea of meditation and focus of consciousness as being you know a key to to, to making our way out. You know, and if you look at at a lot of tradition traditional societies. They spent a great deal of effort in the production and appreciation of wisdom, and our society doesn't do that. Yeah, that's and that's true. that's something yeah. I think uh, we we could get back to, and it w- and it would pay huge dividends. Yeah, it's so interesting um, to say that, uh, Richard. I I really wholeheartedly agree. Like, I have a spiritual teacher in India, and I I talk to him from time to time about what we're doing here at Earthshot, and he told me that one of the biggest impact things, probably the biggest impact we can have is just helping people remember how much they love nature. Because if we do that, then we can raise the overall consciousness in the world around this. And it's just going to make everything we do to restore nature and protect it and restore humanity's relationship with nature and address the underlying causes of the destruction in the first place, like all these deep things that we, that, that intersect very closely with, with your work as well, will become a lot easier if a lot more people remember, like, oh, I really love trees. And so even if they're not directly involved in deforestation or other forms of extractive relationship with nature, um, just having more human beings care about this and meditate and, and just raise their consciousness will help everything. And isn't that wonderful? It doesn't cost any money. It doesn't involve any products. It just involves shifts in our behavior and, and, and our, the way that we think and the way that we are in the world. That was very encouraging to me. Yeah, well, I I couldn't agree more. A, a lot of my book power is actually about beauty, the power of beauty, particularly of of, of nature. How nature invests enormous amount of, amounts of effort in the deliberate production of beauty. Evolutionary biologists talk about this in terms of 
sexual selection, you know, uh, the, the peacock investing in its beautiful tail in order to attract mates and, and all of this stuff. But the end result, you know, whether it's flowers or bird's feathers or just the the overwhelming gorgeousness of of uh, of an intact ecosystem you know nature is intentionally beautiful and uh and and we human beings are capable of producing immense beauty too i mean just look at what we've done with music and art and literature and poetry and you know we're there are some good points about us as a species, and and uh, and you know we should concentrate on those good bits because <laughs> because we can we can help make make nature even more beautiful than it already is if that's our goal. Yeah, and no, it reminds me of the whole statement about well being. And I was thinking earlier on in the conversation about the the relationship between well being and growth. And I I would make an un uninformed bet that well-being is what actually nurtures growth uh, in in its most organic and integral sense. And the production of beauty is the thing that we do when we're happy. (laughs) It's like the thing we do for fun just just because we want to. And and it draws us together. It does. Because we all love it too. And we we enjoy it more when we share it with one another. Yeah, this this whole thing is looking about related to beauty. It really was a very strong download for me earlier on this year where I had this big realization this is during a 5meo dmt trip <laughs> i can talk about that on the podcast but you know i really one of the big downloads was what is the underlying purpose of all of this of this you know sort of spatio-temporal realm of the fact that we've evolved conscious thinking and civilization and everything it's really to appreciate beauty and to create beauty in the world in the universe and um that's very profound and that's kind of enough and uh, we have thousands of years of art and um, other sort of activities that, and like you say, enhancing the beauty of nature, like really think, you know, look no further than Japanese culture and see, I can see a sort of like many practices and art forms that have evolved to really enhance and bring out the beauty of nature. And so this is an amazing thing. And it's something that's not commonly sort of accepted or, or, or talked about really. Mm. Um, and so I'm really glad to hear you making that connection between the shift towards more of a regenerative civilization and the importance of appreciation and beauty and love, love for um, our fellow beings and for beautiful things. We could be, we could be a civilization of gardeners <laughs> for one thing. Gardeners of beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, yeah. Uh, I just I feel so frustrated right now because I feel like, given the right conditions, we would actually thrive in this set of challenges. If we could just have the right kind of like global mental climate around what we're dealing with. And for all the energy that gets like, people are throwing so much energy and power at trying to like break the trance of business as usual, the momentum, the inertia, fight on all these political fronts and cultural fronts and material fronts and energy fronts. And it would just be so nice if we weren't at odds with each other. Hmm. And that effort, if we didn't, if it didn't have to be a war of paradigms and tribes and classes and yeah. like, I just, uh, if only we could just really just give everything we have to transforming the situation, it would be fun. Even as it got really intense, it would still probably be like, it's pretty fun, but the precarity and scarcity and fear and kind of violence and 
that were kind of like the karmic, the karmic weight of our situation too. It just like has us, I feel stuck and frozen and very, very dysregulated and confused. Mm -hmm. And how wonderful that we get to be here at the cusp where of the transformation you're talking about, like we get to be here and to witness it and to, with our own consciousness kind of help, help transform, make the transformation happen. It's a privilege. And it's, it is fun. <laughs> I mean, certainly, um, definitely, I've, I'm enjoying this journey with you, Armando, and, and creating this podcast and having these guests on board. It's all part of it, raising consciousness around journey. how we can make it through. Yeah. Well, so, somebody said it, it was a curse, actually. Uh, may you live in interesting times. But it, I guess it's also a blessing. Right. <laughs> right. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Well, I just want to give a shout out to the Post Carbon Institute and all the kind of educational materials y'all have you've been producing out. The Power Podcast, the What Could Possibly Go Right podcast, the Think Resilience um, course on your website. Um, the Post Carbon Institute team has done a ton of work to kind of catch us up to the situation and to help us think through how to respond um, in the future for what's coming. So if you haven't checked them out, please check them out. It's a, it's a huge resource. Thanks for mentioning that, and it's been it's been a it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you, and uh, and may we en- enjoy our interesting times and make them beautiful. May it be so. Real pleasure meeting and talking to you, Richard. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot podcast. This episode was edited by Theodore Lowry from Storypaths, and the music you heard during the intro was by Little Whale. To learn more about Earthshot Labs, visit our website, www.earthshot.eco.